Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 270. So I came across a pretty cool connector that uh, I, I should say I actually kind of stumbled into this connector. Um, so I bought an XLR connector. So just a, like a microphone cable connector. Yeah, those aren't that cool. Well, this one, okay, so this one, it baffled me at first because the data sheet doesn't necessarily say anything about this, uh, like w- this one feature that all engineers hate or something like that, whatever. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 this is actually kind of <laughs> cool. I was trying to be uh, uh, clickbaity there. But, Dramatic. Uh, th- so I'm, I'm actually holding it uh, the, the XLR connector up to, uh, so Parker can see it. Okay, but, yeah. like... Looks like a regular XLR connector. That's a PCB mount, at, or it's PCB and and panel mount. Right angle, yeah. But it goes bloop, and it comes apart. So you have this shroud thing that connects to the panel, and then you uh-huh. have uh, the actual PCB mount thing. So when I first got this, I had no clue that these two pieces came apart because I'm not really used to that. I don't run into that situation one molded piece exactly exactly so i'm like wait what did i buy here uh this this is odd and then i did a bit of an investigation by actually searching on the manufacturer's website so this this xlr connector if you look down the barrel has a little screw terminal in it like uh, not a screw like a little set screw kind of thing yeah yeah that if you look on the uh the actual connector part it has uh, like this swing arm that can um, that the screw turns, so you can put the two connectors together and then put a screw in, turn it, and lock the connectors together, or you can uh, disassemble them. So this is meant for manufacturing, such that the shroud part that connects to the panel, you can at a separate time connect that to the panel solder the inner portion on your PCB and have them separate so you can do testing separate and then bring them together at a different time and connect them together. Oh, interesting. So you don't have to waste all your build box and then find out your product doesn't work. That and this allows you to do either rear mount on your cha- on your panel or um, front mount on your panel. Uh, because since this is a PCB mount, you don't have to permanently connect it together. So it makes it super easy to break them, th- break the two apart, solder everything as assemblies, and then bring them together. Yeah, yeah. That's actually one thing I noticed on that, uh, um, what was it? The uh, the fan controller was the, the connectors that go to the outside world outside of it are molded in the enclosure itself, like in the body. And then the pins just hang out. So you can't actually remove the PCB mm. um, without basically desoldering those pins because the pins are molded into the enclosure. So, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying is since now your your part that screws to the panel is separate, you could put your board down and then plug the outside parts into your component. Yeah, it makes for super convenient assembly, but it also makes for... Um like if something goes wrong, you can just replace the inner barrels or the or the whole PCB that connects to that. So mm-hmm. it makes for a non-permanent uh, solution, which is yeah. super awesome. Yeah, because otherwise you'd have to desolder all your XLRs, then remove the board. Good luck on that. It, it, it actually kind of reminds me of um, the 
gosh, a long time ago, I was talking about a frequency generator that I bought that was made of grade A Chinesium. And uh, like the entire thing was multiple assemblies that were hard soldered together and hard soldered into the case. It was virtually impossible without just taking a hammer to it to disassemble it if you wanted to and this is the exact opposite of that but it but it is funny because like when i first got it i'm like wait huh uh, wait how like could we call that assembly like solder in place assembly you know yeah that sounds reasonable i don't know if there's a special term for it but i like that for yeah building something like that i don't know bad design maybe we should just call it that. <laughs> <Bad> design. <laughs> well it makes sense on like the fan controller because like i don't really see any other way of like making a waterproof seal that way because that's actually a really good way to do it except that you know the front panel and back panel of the fan controller aren't waterproof at all so it's like okay why is it done this way but you know it makes for a pretty convenient assembly and, sure, and yeah. it's not like it's not like you have to remove that board to do any work on it anyways it's not much to go wrong it's got that. well and even with these things like you probably wouldn't like the the chance that you need to remove it is pretty slim but it's but it is nice that they give you that ability and actually it's kind of cool because if you go to the the website and you read like the product page for this they talk about this as a feature being uh saying like you can solder your entire unit as an like an assembly test it as an assembly board and then break them apart and assemble into the final unit and mm -hmm. i think that's brilliant you're if you, if you build your product with those, you're saving some poor audio engineer's like entire day of his work by putting those in. Actually, you know what's funny? I might make the argument that you're not saving the that because these are so odd. I've never seen these before. They would probably go and desolder them and then figure out that they could have done this. Because, <laughs> like, I'm inspecting this thing and I didn't even see that little set screw that's, like, buried down into the uh, uh, the body of it. Now, now, to be honest, I do have a little concern on this, though, because um, the two sections of this, they they the way they fit together and the way that little swing arm fits into a groove and kind of connects the two connectors seems great, but this is a highly mechanical part. Uh, the user puts a bunch of force by like pushing a connector into it. And the question I have is, is that one little swing arm that connects these two connectors, is that enough to take the brunt of the user pushing this connector into it? Or is the PCB pins themselves, are they going to take a bunch of force and push against the PCB? Um, I guess I have a little bit of concern on that. And uh, I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about like big beefy XLR connectors is they're just a big metal body that you can be fairly confident that the, the enclosure of the connector itself is going to take most of the force when you push against it. But I'm not so sure about this one. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll have to see. Why why did you end up buying these? If you didn't know about that feature, why did you end up picking these? Uh I they're Neutric and I like Neutric and I saw they were the right price and they looked good and they had all the information I needed, so I picked these up. Okay. <laughs> to be honest, that's it. So they were in stock and and you like the brand. Yep. Yep. That's about Which it. in this supply chain environment, that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> And the, yeah, the part number for these is NC3MD-H-BAG uh, for the male and then replace M with F for the female version. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look them up real quick. 
Oh, I've ordered some stuff from these guys before. Yeah, they're they're ubiquitous on uh, Mauser. Yeah, that's actually the second thing on features and benefits is insert is removable from rear of connector and locked into place by internal latch, permitting assembly and disassembly for testing and PCB assembly into housing. Bingo. Or confusing engineers. It also does that. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a cool idea, though. Yeah, I think that's really novel. I like it. I do like how they have an accessory that's CAS dummy. Ooh, what is that? Do I need to go buy it? Um, mix assortment of dummy plugs. Uh, okay. I don't I know what dummy plugs are. Plugs, I guess you could plug them in for shipping or keep dust out of them or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's unused inputs can be covered to avoid miswiring and protect against dust. Yeah. I just like it that, that their part number is, is dummy. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Jeff Kaiser had a really interesting tweet that got my brain rolling. So Jeff Kaiser is Mighty Ohm on Twitter. And uh, he posted a picture of Keysight's new scope lines. And he says that they're like dark mode for scopes. Mm. So dark mode is like the quote unquote new wave of what like applications are like. Um, I, yeah, Reddit went nuts for it, right? Yeah, it... So I personally don't enjoy dark mode too much, but there's some people who like don't like to be blinded by their monitors or um, actually for phones, since phones use OLED technology for their displays, is dark mode saves battery. So there's a good engineering reason why, not because user preference. But so Keysight scopes, they have like, they're like dark gray in color now. Um, and my only comment on this is like, it's taking about... 20 years for like like test equipment to catch up to PC enclosures because like 20 years ago like before 20 years ago most PC cases besides like Apple ones were like beige boxes mm. and then they turn then like hobbyists and stuff started modifying them and stuff and then you could buy like a black aluminum enclosure a dark mode enclosure right and so I'm like okay is it going to take when do we get our first like clear enclosure? Cause there was like that whole movement in PC cases to be like acrylic mm. only or like windows. So you can see the electronics inside them. Um, and then when do we get like RGB, like scope probes? <laughs> yeah. Cause PC cases, <laughs> PC master race is all about like how much RGB can I put into like how much power draw is possible with just RGBs? Yeah, how much light? How many RGB lights can I have? It's just it's ridiculous. Red, green, blue. Yeah. So I like the look of these new key sites. They do look cool. Yeah, they uh, the whole white thing is uh, is great and all, but these it's a good way to uh, separate themselves from the crowd. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although, according to Jeff, he doesn't like their uh, new dark theme. Yeah. It could be like uh, tool manufacturers like Milwaukee and like DeWalt, and they could have super bright colors like red, yellow, construction yellow, or it'd be like Makita, which is like barf blue. <laughs> barf blue. Yes. I, I think that's a new color you created. Came up with. <laughs> it's actually really close to these scissors I have. Yeah, actually, no, I, the web the webcam actually does not do that justice. This is green, by the way. What? 
Yeah, the webcam shows blue. <laughs> hey, over, yeah, over the over the webcam, I'm seeing barf blue over here. No, I I think the reason oh, they use all those like really crazy colors is um uh such that when you're walking through your favorite uh, big box store, you 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 see them easily, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm actually taking a picture of the difference. Don't trust what your eyes see, or don't trust the electric eye. Yeah, that is that is really weird. Is Keysight doing this on all of their new stuff? I think so, because if you actually go onto their Twitter, it's all their scopes look like that now, all their test equipment, which I, I actually really like how it looks. So so did you participate in the uh, Keysight University Live stuff that was going on? I did not know what that was. Yeah, they they did it. What, was it this week or last week? Gosh, <laughs> I'm getting old if I can't even remember a few days ago. So Keysight University Live, they 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 were uh I they were giving away about like three hundred thousand dollars worth of test gear, including a bunch of like scopes and and um, power supplies and all kinds of stuff. And they had this whole like week long thing. In fact, I, I think it's still going and they will do more of it next uh month. So I apologize if I'm butchering it if anyone from Keysight is listening right now. But it's um it was a bunch of videos on some like cool uh electronic topics, but also how to use test gear and stuff. And uh so there was a lot of chances to win some really cool test test gear stuff. Well we have to look for it for next time. Yeah, I gosh, I think they're they're doing they were they did like a whole week of the university thing where they would take random uh, things actually, what, they had a, a cool video where they got a handful of their RF team together, and they tried to come up with unique solutions to boost the signal from their key fob to unlock their car. And they they were doing all kinds of stuff like testing if you hold it up to your face, does your head act as does your skull act as an, a signal oh, booster? An amplifier. And uh, and they had like or a, a box. antenna. Well, yeah, and and people were doing like tinfoil hats and making like little cones and all kinds of stuff, and and they had a box that they were actually measuring, uh, like the effectiveness of it, and uh, it was it's a pretty cool video, so check it out. I think it's only like ten minutes or something like that, but it's fun. And they did prove that your skull increases <laughs> signal integrity, so if you can't unlock your car, just stick it up to like your jaw or something like that. I I don't remember exactly how it was. Go watch the video. <laughs> and bounce those waves off the off the bottom of your brain. Yeah, it probably bounces a handful of times inside your skull and then emits out your eyeballs. <laughs> Actually, you know what's funny? Well, maybe it's not funny per se, but uh, uh, it's it's interesting. My 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 buddy, his his mother um, came down with um, a form of cancer of the eyeball, and uh, they. Yeah, that's not funny at all. <laughs> no, but the solution Thanks, they have. Steven, that's no, no, a downer. The 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 medical solution they have for this is is funny. So uh, the what they what they had they created this little. It's basically a square of of lead. This little thin sheet of lead, and then on top of the lead, they put some. Uh, I don't remember some radioactive element, uh, such that it was a directional emitter of radioactivity. And they went behind her eyeball and they basically glued it to the back of the eyeball. So it was pointing right at the cancerous cells. And the thing about it was it emitted radioactivity straight out her eyeballs. So for a few days, she wasn't allowed to look at people uh, (laughs) because she had like 
laser beam eyes, her, you know? Her stink eye could actually give people cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know what's great? It actually worked. It killed the cancer cells, but like she had to be like alone and not look at people for a few days. That's interesting. Yeah. The solutions, man. Crazy. Yeah, it does look like uh, I guess no, I guess that garden. makes sense from a like what's the least amount of tissue in your body to hit the cancer? Because you, because they most mostly kill cancer with radiation and, and stuff like that. So I guess that makes sense to go from the back of the eyeball instead of having to go through the eyeball then through your skull. Well, and that's just the thing. Like, what's behind your eyeball? That probably one of the few things, uh, the most important thing to not shoot radioactivity at. So they they just basically made a lead shield for radioactivity going backwards. That's interesting. Yeah. So she she had superpowers for a few days. That she couldn't turn off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to cover some of these very interesting uh, supply chain stuff. I know we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, but. Well, it's affecting everyone. It is affecting everyone that listens to our podcast. Because um, like DigiKey and Mauser have like seven day delays right now mm-hmm. and just shipping stuff out. Um, but regardless, the. Um, it's a um, article we found from uh, Fierce Electronics, which is co- uh, titled "Chip Makers Are Hustling to Make Auto Chips," and they say it's not a hustle. And it's kind of like we're, we're picking some of the comments out of here that we found really interesting, um, because there's uh, basically all these chip makers are they're using their lines to build higher margin items, and they need other lines to build. The lower um, lower margin, older technology items for automotive, and so what they're doing is they're buying old equipment. And where are they getting the old equipment from? And basically, they're going around and stalking other chip manufacturers that are are slowly going out of business and then eating them all up. <laughs> it's weird because it's like they're just sitting there sniffing them and just like, I can't wait for you to die. Yes, I can buy your equipment. (laughs) Um, Nom, nom, (laughs) nom. Because apparently the equipment to make all these chips is also on really extreme back orders right now. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, the the industry cannibalism is crazy right now. Yep. And then there was a, um, the, this this is the part that you pulled out, which was chips used in braking and engine systems. So it was talking about automotive systems are typically made of using older tech that is sufficient to meet autom- automaker reliability requirements, while newer infotainment and assisted driving technologies require modern chips with cutting-edge chip factories, which I thought was a, a very interesting comment, to, uh, uh, comment as well from this article, because it makes sense, is when you think about reliability, what makes something reliable? Is it the design? Is it, is it the people who designed it or the people who manufacture it usually not it's a combination of that but the main thing is it's known it's been tested over a long period of time and so once you have something that works really well and is highly reliable you don't change it oh yeah don't touch unless you're forced to yeah for sure so yeah old faithful rely on on the stuff that's like proven and known like which one which one would you rather have go down your braking system or I don't know, like the little computer screen in in your dash, you know? Oh, that tells me I'm listening to like 94.5 The Buzz. Oh, who listens to that? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. So it uh, looks like the, the I mean, the, the that's one of the things that both kind of sucks because we have people going out of business uh, doing these things. But it's also nice that like this proven technology exists uh, and we can go and snag it all up and just bring it online pretty quickly. Well, we'll see what online quickly means. I'm sure they're going to do it as fast as possible. I mean, if you have the large auto uh, uh, makers going out or, or, or having outages, I'm sure that they are doing absolutely everything in their power to uh, prevent that, right? Including yeah. buying up fab equipment. Yeah. yeah. Or convincing well, their CNs to buy it. I think we did talk about it, but it was the where Chevy... Chevy and GM are like just omitting components from their cars. <laughs> I mean, they're going to do everything, right? Yeah, just a move product. Yep. Yeah, that's I don't know. It's crazy. So another thing, what chip makers are doing is the United States is getting new fabs. Well, I think it's like the first time in I don't know how many years, but it's definitely more than five years. Actually, finally getting new fab, uh, fabs in the United States. Um, because Intel's building two new seven nanometer fabs. Um, TSMC is building a new five nanometer fab. What's interesting though, these are all like bleeding edge tech, uh, scale, which is not what the auto industry uses. Right. Yeah. But you know, whatever. Well, but, but talk about spin up. I mean, if you're building a new fab, I'm sure it's not going to be like, oh, well, we're ready to go tomorrow. Yeah. Oh yeah, Exactly. Uh, especially with how much money some of these fabs cost, because like the Intel fab is like twenty billion dollars. Yeah, uh, just which is ridiculous amounts of money. That's just I, I can't even think about how much money that is. Um, and Samsung is building a three nanometer fab, and these are all going to be in like Texas and Arizona and New York. You know, okay, like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a quick little side note. I, I remember having a conversation with my buddy in college about this. Uh, we we took a um, semiconductor fab class and and when when you when you uh, do the all the equations that they require you to do in those classes virtually everything is like nanometers are big uh, in in those kind of classes you start to get so used to working in scales that small that it doesn't feel small anymore like you're just like your mind just reconfigures itself that's like oh okay in order to make these equations work i just have to pull an extra nanometer here or there or whatnot. Like you need to stop and, and get some reality every once in a while and look back and be like, no, a nanometer is freaking tiny, like tiny. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's funny. Like if you just, if you spend your entire life on on a piece of paper, uh, working in, in whatever units, you just don't get like an appreciation for that. There's just a way to put it. <laughs> Sorry to derail there. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, it's, it's like one of those, um, when when you when you say a leader for to an American, you're not because we're both from the United States. When you say a leader to me, I'm like I don't know what that is. But you say a quarter of a gallon, I know how much that is. And a quarter gallon is actually pretty close to a liter. Um, so it's interesting to think about that concept. It's it's yeah, we have to start using units to actually understand what those units actually are. You have to experience it, which which is funny because like if you look at astrophysics or cosmology or whatnot and you and you start just throwing around AUs or light years or, or things like that like it, it's impossible to experience distances of that sort and uh, but yet you start throwing those around in and like 
they just explode into these uh, unimaginable units that uh, it, which nanometers in in a, in the same way are, are kind of the same thing where it's just like you you never really experience it but there's stuff that's happening there yeah or like in angstroms which is atoms yeah actually yeah there was a, there was a handful of stuff we were talking about when we were in college where we were just talking about um, transistors that were a few angstroms wide. Uh, where it's just like that's that's another level where it's like okay now we're talking about like having sheets of individual atoms and things like for gates on transistors. It it just it's it's all just like fantasy at some point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's something that you can. I, I'm going to bet you chip designers understand those units really well, but like for normal people, it's really hard to experience what that size actually is oh your eyes just gloss over yeah roll back in your head yeah turn into a, a shark so yeah some fabs are coming to the united states actually it looks like they're coming to what is it look uh, i'm looking at this arizona and texas and maybe even new york right correct cool and then um actually another thing i i uh found out was that um the fabs in texas some of them haven't even restarted yet. Oh, from the since. from the weather, from the weather, the uh, the snowpocalypse. Uh, did they even name that storm? I don't know. When it got really, really, really cold in Texas, like the people would forget already. Like three weeks ago, <laughs> was, it, <laughs> was that like was four, only like three weeks ago? Right? It's like four weeks ago, I think. At this point, okay. Um, yeah, uh, Samsung Infineron and NXP Fabs. Have not restarted yet. Hmm. I wonder. I bet you they have water problems, because that's our next topic. <laughs> what a segue! <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of the issues that TSMC is having because they're in Taiwan. It's in the name. Um, they're in uh, Taiwan's having some really interesting uh, water problems, but the exact opposite of what you would normally think. They don't have enough water. Because um, there's like flooding. Normally, when you say people having water problems, it's flooding, or it's too cold in Texas. <laughs> it's, it's turned into ice. Um, but they stated they use um, 156,000 tons of water a year, which is wait a year or a day? No, it's a day. A day. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> so yeah, 156,000 tons of water a day. That's 34,454,981 gallons a day. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm thinking about that number, and I'm like, they're going to build these in, like, Texas and Arizona, which are not the most... I mean, you, you need to be, like, in the Great Lakes. Like, you need a lot of water. Hmm. Um, so I actually started... I googled, like, is that number that TM, uh, TSMC even stated? Basically, what's happening in Taiwan, though, is they don't have enough water. And they're having water shortages, so they can't make chips um, or integrated circuits. Um, so I found actually a water management report by TSMC. See how much like, actual water they use, and are they able to recycle this stuff? Or is it just straight-up wastewater? That's um, a ton of wastewater. So this is a report from 2018. From TSMC, their corporate social responsibility report, and it's on the water aspect. Of it. There's a bunch of other things in here, but um, 
in 2018, they recycle 87.5% of the water. So, okay, they get the recycled, the majority of it. But the uh, water consumption is 85.1 million metric tons. They don't have a unit there. You have to go like in the note and see what the unit is for that. Million metric tons. And then there's tap water consumption. So there's like ultra pure water consumption. And then there's tap water consumption. Tap water consumption is 56.8 million metric tons. We're, we're, we're just spending a good chunk of this uh, podcast talking about just unimaginable units, right? Yeah. Yeah, this crazy units. And so they have the total amount of water recycled, which is 129 million metric tons. So I'm going to guess if you add up the other two numbers, multiply it by 87.5%, and that equals 129 million metric tons. I'm going to assume that. Um, not doing the math right now. But yeah, that's uh, kind of interesting. Oh yeah, number of times each drop of water is used. 3.5. So I guess that's that's an interesting way to put it. Each drop of water is used. Yeah, what do you define as a drop? Well, just it's just weird to state it like that. Yeah. That's definitely kind of like a marketing um way to put it. Because it's like makes it no, you're just cleaner. reusing the water three and a half times. Right, right, right. Yeah. On average. If if anyone knows like what what uh, what is the in the fab industry like what is water used for i mean obviously it's used for i mean like there's everything can be back traced towards to water but i'm curious like what yeah what is the like biggest user of water or what process requires that much i guess there's a lot of chemical processes that require to i'm, I'm assuming yeah i wonder if it's diluting all the chemicals But I think this is over like these numbers I was t talking about are over like all of TSMC's fabs. Oh, sure. But I mean, it's still impressive one way or the other. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. But yeah. Very interesting uh, paper. Yeah, check that out. We'll post it in the uh, in the links. It's like when you think about like a hamburger. And like, yeah, you go to McDonald's to buy a hamburger for a dollar. But then you actually realize like how much like environmental impact that burger had <laughs> on the world. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's significant. Actually, so you know, it's funny. Like I, I look at how much water I use when I brew beer. Like, OK, the end result, the target I'm shooting for is five gallons of water. But, five gallons of beer. Oh, sorry. Yeah, five gallons of beer, which is about six percent alcohol. Uh, yeah, somewhere in that range, right? Yeah. So, okay, so five gallons, uh, five gallons of beer, and uh, whenever you're calculating a recipe, it's it always helps to start from the end and then go yeah, back towards and you go backwards. I want five. How do I get to five? And uh, it's it's almost like an energy equation where you're seeing where all the energy falls off, and then it, you really your eyes start to open as you peel back all the processes and stages, most of which require water. So, five gallons, you you lose some in the stage right before uh, from like just crap in your ferm uh, fermenting bucket. So you like 
it takes six to make five. But then mm. you have to backtrack that six because you boiled off, uh, what, a gallon and a half, right? And your dead space in your boil kettle. And the dead space. So you're like at nine gallons to make five uh, at this point. But then you have what goes into the grain and the grain soaks up absorbs. some water, absorbs some. So you're like at 10 or 11. But then Parker and I use submersion heating uh systems which i use 11 gallons of water just as a heater so oh i use like 15 <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah. so now we're like in the 20s range but then you also well i use tap water to cool down my beer and that runs out of my hose for a continuous i don't know probably four minutes or something like that so so all said and done to make that five gallons of beer at the end of the day you're consuming like 30 gallons to get there you know massively oh, inefficient oh yeah and it used to be really bad when i did that same way of cooling my boil down yeah was by running water and i would water my lawn yeah but I could water like my lawn like three times over because I'm using Houston tap water, which is not cold at all. Yeah. And then with my new setup, I just use ice now, which is way better efficiency in terms of volume. Sure. Well, more efficient in terms of the water usage, but probably a lot less efficient in terms of energy usage. Uh, no, it's pretty good. It's like 50 pounds of ice is required. Yeah, but I'm talking about the energy required to make that into ice. Oh, yeah. Oh, now we're talking about my carbon footprint to brew five gallons of beer. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not great. (laughs) At least we're using electricity for the burners now instead of propane. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we're just burning gas somewhere else as opposed to in our driveway. That's true. (laughs) But those gas plants are, this is like the, this is like that argument of like, Electric car. I think, yeah, we got in this on one episode, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was like after an episode we talked about this. But um, there's that argument of like, oh, if you buy an electric car, they're still burning fossil fuels somewhere else, which is 100% okay. Trade off. Your internal combustion engine is only like 30 to 35% efficient. Those gas plants are like 80% efficient at turning hydrocarbons into electric energy mm-hmm. or usable. Let's just say usable energy at the end because they have reclamation or not reclamation, uh, reclamation circuits so they can recycle all that heat. Whereas your internal combustion engine just dumps it into the, into the world. So. Yep. Yeah, so don't get don't get into brewing to save the planet. No, yeah, it's, <laughs> even on a commercial level, it's not that great. No, we can try to be better though. We can yeah. try to be better. So actually, that was one thing I was thinking about was like if I was going to build another system, which will eventually happen. Season um, two, season two, which isn't going to happen. I don't think this season. It'll just depend. COVID kind of hit my brewery numbers pretty hard. Um, but the, uh, is, do I stick with ice, which is fine. Do I get an ice maker to make enough? Cause right now I, I have to go to like the gas station and pick up like, you know, six bags of ice, which is kind of annoying, you know? Um, do I get an ice maker to make my own ice or do I switch over to like a refrigeration system? A glycol system. 
Yeah, kind of like a glycol system to cool it down, cool it to boil down. You know, if you wanted to be, I, I suppose, a little bit more um, energy efficient, what you could do is take the boiling liquid, dump that straight into your fermenter, like at boiling temperature, seal it all up so it sanitizes it, let it let it naturally cool down, and then use something to cool it down further once it's uh, once it's reached like room temperature. Well, actually, the problem with that is you don't get your cold break. Yeah, yeah, there's sac- there's compromises, right? Yeah, there's compromises. But yeah, you don't get your cold break in your boil um, when you do it that way. Because yep. I have tried that way So before. you get hazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, which is fine. Yeah, A lot of people like hazy beer now. That's right. But all that's your beers would be hazy. In, that's, that's, a, that's a quality in beer that people enjoy now. They they seek it out. Yes. Uh, well, this is going to be a little short episode. Um, I'm taking you know a little vacation this coming up weekend, so we're doing this episode the day after the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig and Parker Dolman. Take it easy. <laughs>